0: The Currency with Nick Bullman, brought to you by FXCO Commercial FX
1: Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. Good evening, and welcome to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Over the next hour, we'll review the current international economic, business, and geopolitical issues that impact markets at home and abroad. Coming up. American technology analyst Roger Kay explains how Wall Street measures the value of a tech company. Brian Murray, head of economic strategies at AIA Insurance Group in Hong Kong, joins us to deliver our international markets update. We have our panel in studio to discuss some of the top business stories that made the headlines this week. But first to the drugs industry where some of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies will conduct a series of large asset exchanges in what analysts are calling a pharma frenzy. Swiss-headquartered Novartis has announced a $14.5 billion swapping of assets with pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline, both of whom supply 3,000 jobs in Ireland. Now, joining me on the line is business reporter for the Irish Independent and the Sunday Independent, Sarah McCabe. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Nick. How are you? So, Sarah, why why is Novartis initiating uh, the shake-up of assets, and, and what is their strategy?
2: Um, well, basically, what this gives Novartis access to is a, is a huge cancer drug portfolio. Um, so, GlaxoSmithKline has an extensive group of, of cancer drug assets that nicely complements Novartis' existing portfolio. Um, and and basically, what it will do is turn Novartis into a global leader. And um, so, it, it makes sense for both companies. It gives Novartis. Uh, this huge portfolio of drugs, really putting it right at the top um, in terms of um, cancer treatment. And it gives GlaxoSmithKline um, money to play with, to invest in other areas. Because as I mentioned, GlaxoSmithKline has been building up the cancer portfolio for several years, but it's only number 14 in the world. And obviously, by deciding to sell, um, it, it, it's cutting its losses and saying, look, we're going to focus elsewhere.
1: And where will it leave uh, Novartis in the oncology sector? Does it, does it take it right to the top or just close?
2: right to the top, absolutely. Um, Cancer treatments are an interesting area because there's a lot of companies uh, piling into this this, th- these kind of medicines they're very lucrative there's lots of uh, evolving technology and um, treatments that are based on the body's own immune system for example and the drugs that, uh, that are produced get an awfully high price so it's a very competitive market so it does put Novartis right up the top but it'll be interesting to see in 10 years time whether it's still there because as I said um, lots of people are putting big money into this
1: and perhaps a key question for the Irish market is it, how is it going to affect Irish jobs is it, is it going to have an impact
2: well, that's an interesting question um, I contacted spoke people for both companies for both Navars and GlaxoSmithKline. I mean they both employ about 1500 people each um, mostly between Dublin and Cork um, and Basically, they said it was too early to say. So this is this is a deal that's happening right at the top. But I think the one thing that we can be sure of is change. So um, reg- it may mean expansion, it may mean contraction. But this is definitely going to have some ramifications on jobs. Um, there, whether there's some overlap in GSK and Novartis's portfolios, it's not quite clear yet. Uh, we, you know, we 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 don't know whether that will mean cuts or not. But I would I would imagine it it will mean some element
1: of foundation and, and lastly just on on um, the the patent cliff that we we're arriving at there are a lot of drugs coming out of patent over the next uh, couple of years um, is this all happening at a time i mean is this is one of the reasons for the the asset swaps and is this all coming at a bad time for the irish pharma sector it is and
2: it isn't yes i mean the, the cancer drug area is it, you know, that's not as subject to the 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 patent glyph as um other other drugs, so this is kind of a, a different play but I know what you mean it is it, it, it is a, it's a turbulent time for this industry i mean it's Ireland has had a strong pharmaceutical sector, multinational pharmaceutical sector here since the 1970s, and now it's at its most vulnerable today. I mean, we have a whole host of blockbuster drugs produced here that are going or have gone off patent, and the, the example most recently cited is Pfizer's Lipitor. Um, but I mean, you name any big drug co- company that's here, and they've faced a drug going off patent. And um, the problem with these multinationals is that. If an international site's no longer lucrative, they could easily leave. You know, there's nothing to stop them moving to another country. This is their. This is not their home base. So we saw that in with Pfizer in Little Island in Cork. They announced the shutdown of a factory, and I believe that was linked to the Lipitor and um, the, the falling value of producing it there.
1: That was uh, Sarah McCabe, business reporter with the Irish Independent, and thank you for filling us in on the, the latest with uh, pharma Frenzy. Now, here in the studio with me is our panel, uh, Chief Economist with the ESRI, John Fitzgerald, and Business Affairs Correspondent with the Irish Times, Mark Paul We'll be discussing uh, the OECD's review of the government uh, employment strategy, uh, Primark to launch in the US. But first, following on from Sarah's report on this uh, so-called pharma frenzy, can you see this um, redistribution of assets affecting Irish pharmaceutical jobs, uh, John, either for the better or for the worse?
0: I don't think it will have a major impact in Ireland that the employment uh, seems to be fairly stable in Ireland, spread across a lot of different companies, spread across a lot of different drugs. And when one drug... Drop, drops out of patent, it may continue to be produced here, um, or it may re- be replaced by some other new on-patent on drug.
1: And we were talking earlier uh, outside the studio about um, uh, about India and some of the, 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 the companies that have had less success there setting up uh, it, factories. It,
0: one of the reasons why Ireland is successful in this industry is that we are very good at getting a drug approval that we have specialists. It, it, it's a, it, in order to get a drug approved and keep the plant approved to produce it, in particular for the US market, which is the key market. You have to be, be, be on uh, uh, very good at what you do, and it looks as if some of the really big drugs that have dropped out a patent where they could be produced elsewhere more cheaply, but they're having difficulty getting FDA approval to sell into the United States. So that's th- there's a quality issue which we're good at now. We are a high-cost location for production, so... All the time, there are things moving out, but it's the new ones that come in that replace it that are significant. And in this area, um, all right, there's a loss of patent. So uh, Pfizer lost five point five billion dollars in revenue from a drug produced in Ireland. And That's five point in two thousand twelve. That's five point five billion dollars less exports and output in Ireland. But it had no, n- pretty well no effect on the Irish economy because Pfizer is wholly owned abroad, so those profits would have gone back out. So there are less profits to go back out. The employment in the sector over the period where a lot of drugs fell out of patent didn't change much and it's the employment is the value added in Ireland profits for Novartis or Pfizer they're not our profits, they're somebody else's
1: and Mark, I was talking to a retired executive from Pfizer this week, and uh, he was saying one of one of the problems for for pharmaceutical companies is that they they have to spend enormous amounts of money to develop the drug in the first place, four five billion. It takes ten years to bring the drug to market, and then they only have a twenty year patent window. Uh, nine out of ten of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world are based here in Ireland. Do you think there's going to be? Uh, does that make Ireland more vulnerable, or the Irish job market more vulnerable to? this kind of uh, turbulence that's occurring in the in the pharma industry?
3: Well I, I think as John said it's unlikely to have an enormous impact but of course it all depends on the combinations that we see. I mean, I mean really the strategy that, that's been undertaken by a lot of these companies from a corporate point of view is to is to if they're small it's to get big and if they're big and they've got a large portfolio of products it's to slim down so they either need to get big or get out uh, of their sectors there's no point in, for example, GlaxoSmithKline is um, I think 14th in, 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 in the oncology market, in the cancer drugs market. It's, it's, it's 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 pointless it, it it being that size so you know, it, uh, uh, the, the, it depends on the combinations. If two companies, uh, uh producing two similar types of drugs, both in Ireland, both combined down the line, and, and then they merge their operations in Ireland, um, um and well then, you know, potentially it could have a, a bigger impact on jobs. But it all depends, it all depends on the, uh, on, on the types of combinations that we see. I mean, the days where, um, a, a, a company could come in fourth or fifth in the market and just with an enormous sales force just push, um, um, their, their, their drug up the block blockbuster status, it's gone. They really have to be good at what they do now. Um, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see what combinations we see, but certainly these won't be the last ones we see.
1: Good. Well, look, uh, we'll go to a short break now. Uh, coming up, the OECD on unemployment and Primark takes on the U.S. The Currency with Nick Bullman, Brought to you by FXCO Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency. You can tweet us with your comments at TheCurrencyNT or email TheCurrency at Newstalk.ie. Now, before the break, our panellists, chief economist with the ESRI, John Fitzgerald, and business affairs correspondent with the Irish Times, Mark Paul, were discussing the changing landscape of the pharmaceutical industry. But now, moving on to the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. They published its review of the government's annual employment strategy earlier this week. It stated that the government appears to be well on track to achieve its target of 100,000 new jobs by 2016. It also praised efforts made to, quote, strengthen the linkages between SMEs and large foreign multinationals. However, the controversial job bridge scheme could not avoid scrutiny. Mark, what were the main concerns from the OCD surrounding the Job Bridge scheme? Um, um,
3: specifically, Yves Letourne, the, the Deputy Secretary General of the OECD, was in Dublin during the week and, and, and he put it quite simply. He said Job Bridge is too big and too expensive. Um, um, he, they don't think it's targeted enough. Um, and the, the size of the scheme was recently expanded to, I think, about 8,500 places. And they have fears over um, um, long-term unemployment. And um, which has gone from, uh, I think about uh, 25,000 people in 2005 to 155,000 now. Um, um, and they have concerns over youth unemployment. And what Eve Le said, his fear for Ireland was that the youth unemployment, the youth unemployed in Ireland would become the long-term unemployed. That was his fear. And they think JobBridge um, or schemes like it, they're too catch-all. Um, and he thinks they should be much more targeted, much more linked to taking up the training places. But he also warned as well that schemes like JobBridge can become they can, they can have what he termed lock-in effects um, which is where you just give up looking for a job at all you're, just, you're, you're stuck in a work experience scheme um, and that could take up a full week's work um, and where do you go looking for a job while you're um, you, can, you, you can get caught up in the bubble of being on a work experience and, and you know it's supposed to be um, all about finding employment and perhaps on a big all-encompassing scheme like, like JobBridge that it takes up too much of, of a job seeker's time as well
1: And uh, John from your perspective how do you view the JobBridge scheme and, and, and the whole issue of youth unemployment
0: well on youth and employment um, behind the figures there is actually a success um, and that is that up to the bust um, a large number of boys left school early to go into building construction. And what's happened has been that, um, and they would have been in employment, now they're in education. They have remained on to complete their leaving cert. And the participation by boys in third level education has gone up dramatically, um, still below girls. Um, and what, you, what it's done is it's been driven boys to do what they ought to have been doing, get a decent education. And that means that the number of people in the labour force um, from that age group has fallen substantially, and they 're doing something better and then the unemployment. It comes out as a high rate because there are relatively few people of that age group who are in, who are in the labour market. There is a real problem, though, with those who are unemployed because by definition, they aren't in the educational system. They're not preparing themselves for the future. And that's where job bridge are schemes which provide the training and education which they will need for a future career are important. But I, so there is a problem with youth unemployment, but the numbers are much less than you'd expect. And actually, In the future, you could say persuading boys to stay in school because there isn't another opportunity is in the long term interest of the nation
1: but i would i would take issue with that because i think 26% unemployment uh, it's it's hard to find a rosy picture uh, in that even if the pool of employed is smaller because the pool of employed is also smaller because so many irish youth uh, young uh, men and women have been forced to leave in another di- diaspora so how how can you justify that statement uh, I, i'm not
0: saying the uh, what I said if you go back and listen to what I said I said that there's a real problem with the people who are unemployed I'm just saying that there is a success that more people are remaining on an education and it's better to be in education than to be unemployed and I think we would both agree on
1: that absolutely yeah Um, Moving on then. So looking at the Job Bridge screen, uh, Mark, it is a controversial one. I think um, it has raised some some eyebrows. Do you think it's actually specifically designed to uh, fudge the unemployment figures? I mean, you know, my sense is that, you know, having listened to John there, I I accept the point that education, further education is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I personally don't accept that uh, large youth unemployment is acceptable in any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Is Job Bridge a bit of a fudge?
3: Well, I don't think it's you know although the OECD said it's too big and it's too expensive, I don't think it's big enough to really have a massive impact on the numbers. I mean, I mean, you know, it's, if it's eight eight and a half thousand, if that's if that's the amount of places that are available, in it's not going to have a huge impact on on unemployment figures but it it feeds into a wider argument that the OECD made which is that you know creating a lot in in terms of recovery creating a lot of jobs isn't enough Um, you've got to you know people have got to be motivated um, to leave welfare uh, to take up those jobs and they've also got to be sufficiently trained Um, so the point the OECD were making also in the review was that the government really needs to work much harder on on labour activation um, and on on making sure that the jobs that are created um, and whether it's by foreign multinational or pharma companies or, 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 or Googles or Facebooks or anybody else that the, the, the workforce that is there has to be sufficiently trained in order to take them up so perhaps um, a lot of the, the, the construction workers that John referred to um, and, you know, that are now back in education but perhaps that's a good thing because they're, they're gaining new skills for the new economy or the, the, the next wave of the economy but also is when, um, as well there is the thorny issue of, of, of welfare traps and uh, the OECD raised a flag as to whether or not Ireland's welfare rates um, um, are, 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 are one of the barriers preventing people from taking up um, um, jobs as uh, as they become available and you know I mean I, that, that, that pulls the government into a very very difficult political position as to whether or not it's acceptable now um, um, when jobs are being created at the rate of 60,000 a year whether now it's acceptable um, to cut labour uh, or dole rates uh, even more.
1: Well I'm sure this is a subject that's going to uh, to roll on but we'll we'll now move to the, the US and Primark. The budget clothing retailer Primark known as Pennies uh, here in Ireland is preparing to buy boldly moved to U.S. markets for the first time. The Irish-founded chain, owned by Associated British Foods, saw its sales double in the last five years of recession. Um, it's now attempting to do what others like Tesco and Marks and & Spencers have failed to do. All going well. Primark's going to open in Boston towards the end of 2015. John, why do you think the U.S. market is um, is the place for for someone like Primark to be going at the moment?
0: Well obviously the US market is the biggest it's entry is possible where in other countries you may have problems with planning permissions like France, Italy, it's very difficult to break into them. So it's a market you can break into whether they'll be successful or not in the model of retailing which they bring remains to be seen it's a very competitive market I am interested in terms of watching my daughters coming back to Ireland that one (laughs) of the places they go to is Primark, that does have something... Whether it's only for Irish immigrants or whether it'll yeah. for all of America remains to be seen.
1: I think Tesco did struggle, and others have struggled as they've gone into the market. Um, and it is a very, very competitive field. I mean, particularly the sort of uh, the price bracket that Primark are going for. One of the comments that came from, uh, I think, George Weston, the the chief executive at Primark, was that uh, Boston has a very large percentage of uh, mm. of Irish expatriates. So, uh, you know, I don't think you can build a model on that. That. But do you no. think that will give them? Uh, do you think that'll give them a bit of a, a, a boost?
3: I think it gives them a little bit of of, of a comfort zone for this test bed, and it's this this Boston store precisely what it is is a test bed. I mean, the reason why Primark has been so successful uh, with its expansion into new countries because it's been expanding across Europe at a rate of knots over the last number of years is because it, it manages to match its offering very well and very closely to the local market that it's entering. It doesn't just roll out the same model. The, the economics of the model might be the same, which is um, um, cheap chic, which is they, they, they go out, they find the perfect, the, 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 the on trend, they call it, you know, kind of, kind of the, the perfect fashions of the time. They find very cheap ways of, of, of producing them uh, and then they sell them to their customers. Um, so they'll go into Sweden, for example, and they'll figure out exactly what young Swedish people want to wear, which may not be the same as what French people want to wear or Italian young people want to wear uh, and, 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 and what young American people want to wear. So you know, it's not just about replicating an Irish model and looking for for Irish Americans to go into a pre market in the U.S. and um, they'll use this Boston store to figure out exactly what works for American youths. And um, they're already in negotiations on eight or nine new stores from northeast east of the U.S. Um, and and also they'll need a warehousing operation and to service that sort of. They're they're, they're going to do it in clusters by the look of it. But it it could be a long strategy. But the reason why Tesco and Sainsbury's and Marks and Spencers um, um and failed in the past is because they failed to match their offering to what U.S. consumers wanted. Um and, 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 and pre- pre is very, very good at that. It's not just a uh, take it down from the shelf and dust it off, model, and we roll it out the same as we did in Dublin, Manchester, Leeds, and Bradford. And um, they match. They find out what the youth in that country precisely what they want to wear. The cheapest way of doing it, and off they go.
1: John, you made the point, and I think it is a valid point that actually it's an open, America is an open market, but it is an extraordinary point to make given that we are part of the European Union, and Europe should be our natural place to expand and it should be very easy. I mean, do you view that as a sort of failure of of, uh, EU agreements? Do you think it's just a function of uh, the way business is conducted in Europe?
0: Business is conducted differently in Europe. In the retail sector, for example, in France, it's difficult to get planning permission because the locals Control the planning permission. So, the model that's developed there, Leclerc and these big supermarket chains, you license, you franchise a local. So, a local builds a supermarket and you're Leclerc. And F- Leclerc have pushed out that model and it gives you the localization which which you're talking about in terms of knowing the local fashions. So, Leclerc are big, they big in Spain, in Brazil, and in Asia. Walmart have proved not very successful in Europe because they tried to just wall- roll out Walmart. That they were, and they didn't co op the Locals, they didn't integrate well. And so I think a lesson is exactly what you're saying Um, you've got to know what the local market is. Sorry.
3: No, I was just going to say, I, I was just going to agree with John. I mean, I, mean, I mean, the reason why Walmart failed in Europe was exactly why Tesco failed in the US. They, they, they just, they, they, they didn't think, they, 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 they thought too much about scale and about billing scale quickly and the economics of it. And they didn't think enough about the offering itself.
1: And from an economic timing point of view, um, you know, a lot of people would say that the best time to get involved in going into a new market is during a recession. Uh, given that it looks like the US has exited its recession, is it too late for Primark? They, is it a bad moment there,
3: there, there's very specific reasons, I think, why they've chosen now. And, and, and they, you know, um, George Weston was very clear on, 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 on why they'd chosen to go into the U.S. now because they're still in the middle of the European expansion. I mean, they're fighting a war on two fronts now um, on both sides of the Atlantic. It's because H&M and Zara um, have managed, just managed to get a foothold in the U.S. market and Primark um, and doesn't want to let H, H&M and Zara get too far ahead of it. Um, so it's now or never. Um, 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 uh, U- 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 U.S. consumers have shown themselves to be open to cut-price European Offerings and um, that part of the market in the U.S. retail sector, it's very, very competitive at the moment because a lot of the disc, a lot of the big department stores like Macy's and so on, they do their own fashion discounting um, um, offerings as well. So it's very, it's very specific. It's, they're, they're following hot on the heels of H&M and Zara, and if they let H&M and Zara get too far ahead of them, they'll never catch them.
1: It's very clear. Topshop through mm-hmm. H&M have been able to do various uh, 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 various expansion programs that have worked, mm-hmm. but how how can Primark actually differentiate itself in that market? Is it- it able to or is it just going to be, you know, we've talked a little bit about mm. presenting the, the company as a, a, something that's appropriate for mm. American youth. How does it go about doing that?
3: Well, I, I suppose, well, this is where uh, Boston and this kind of warm, comfortable, semi-Irish environment will prove um, that that's what there will be such a lag time, um, and probably a, a year or more between when they open their first and their second stores. It's because they've they, they said themselves that, that they'll have to sit down and fine-tune their offering. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they've proven themselves, they've just entered the French market, which, you know, John has explained the difficulties going into French retailing. Um, um, but they're, they're brave pre-market like that. You know, they spend a lot of time researching markets. And, you know, I think one store, it's, it's a large store, it's 70,000 square foot, which in, in, in Dublin terms would be a very, very large store. Um, but I think they'll, 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 they'll sit down and they'll use that as a test bed. Um, and, uh, um, um, you know, if they, if, if they get their offering right, um, um, you know that, in that part of the US they could become very successful.
1: Well, unfortunately, that's all uh, we have time for uh, with the panel this evening. My thanks to Chief Economist with the ESRI, John Fitzgerald, and Business Affairs Correspondent with the Irish times Mark Paul. uh, Both of you have taken time to join us this evening. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, how does Wall Street value tech stocks? Stay tuned. In 2012, Facebook priced its IPO at $38 a share, valuing the social network at $104 billion, the biggest ever valuation by an American company at the time of its offering. But how does Wall Street arrive at such high valuations for tech companies looking to float their shares, and are they justified? Joining me to shed some light on this is technology analyst based in the U.S., Roger Kay. So, Roger, how does Wall Street measure the value of a tech company going public.
4: Right. Well, so, Nick, it's very interesting because if you look at a model for the valuation of the firm, it has two basic components. It has the earnings component and the growth component. And if you happen to run a company like, let's say, a steel company, and I don't want to cast any aspersions on another sector, but the business is much simpler to value, than a tech company, most of whose growth is in the future. So if you make some rebar and some other sort of steel products, you know, stamped steel, then uh, you can count how many you make, you can count how much they cost, you can see how fast they sell, how much is in inventory, and that's all about the earnings of the firm. And so that's a fairly easy thing. to. It's an easy thing to see, and it's a fairly easy thing to calculate the value of. Uh, what we used to do is use a model that divided the earnings or even the expected earnings in the next quarter or the next year by the cost of capital. Now, the cost of capital is a little bit difficult to determine, particularly today when it's near zero, in the sense of uh, being able to borrow in the bond market for very cheap, and that does tend to send that other number up much higher. But um, what becomes difficult is when you try to value the growth term, because there are many complicated things that you need to estimate, and you don't know what they are. And so there's a lot of potential for error in that. And the difference between tech companies and the tech sector, the rest of the the economy, is that really almost all the companies, particularly the new ones coming to market, have growth in their future. So you're looking at a company now that's only partially formed, and you're expecting it to be much bigger. And so that's where there's lots of room for error. So The Wall Street firms get together and they try to figure out what those things are and they make some estimates, but of course they're all full of enthusiasm. And so they uh, they have a tendency to estimate rather high and then you can have bad results when the public comes in and says they're never going to do that. And then votes shares
1: down. Well, and and there are good examples of that. Just just the two we were discussing there, Facebook and and King Digital Entertainment, experienced instant falls in share prices as soon as the the stock market opened. So um, is this just sort of irrational exuberance on the part of uh, of, uh, 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 Wall Street and the major firms bringing them, and indeed greed on the part of the owners who are actually selling the companies to the open market?
4: Well, Nick, a little bit what we're talking about here is the sociological part of economics which really depends on the behavior of people in groups and there's also a bit of historical change here so what's going on is that in the private markets in the u.s. now uh, a lot of the money is being raised for companies so if you look at corporate finance for example in the old days it was about bringing your company to market going public getting money from the public for your operations and moving on. What's happened recently is that companies can get plenty of money in the private market and they'd like to. And so they basically take a few investors like Kleiner Perkins and Google Ventures and they get their operations going that way. And they do all of their financing in the private market and only when they're ready to cash out, which is to say when the private investors and the managers of the company their money out of it, do they then go to the public and say, well, here you go. And By that time, the valuations have gotten so high because everybody wants the maximum dollar there at the last second that they bring these, these bloated shares to the public. And the public looks at it and says, there's no way that your company is worth that much. And there's a tremendous disconnect between the average investor and these insiders who manage to reap all of the benefit themselves. And so... They get punished. Well, somebody gets punished. You know, typically not the company because it got the money in the financing, but um, but other people, uh, early investors who are still holding, for
1: example. Well, there's that uh, there's that old uh, there's that old uh, tale that if you're at a poker table and uh, you're trying to work out who the Roper dope is and uh, you don't know after five minutes it's you um i mean is that what's happening to investors that get involved in the uh, in in uh, in investing in these ipos because c- clearly they you know investors invest in them because they think apple's got the best new product or they use facebook and they're familiar with the name so right. is this is this just sort of uh, um an arbitrage that's been used by by wall street really to uh, to to take advantage of investors
4: Uh, Well, I guess uh, that latter point, that that Wall Street has always taken advantage of investors and the game has always been rigged. I think there was recently a book published on this. So there is this um, thing, I think uh, there was some uh, ancient Roman who said something like caveat emptor, and I think that that definitely holds when it comes to the stock market. But that having been said, you can still play this market, but typically waiting at the gates for the IPO to come out and taking whatever they've got, at the opening is probably not gonna be a good strategy unless you bought Google or one of the other stocks that went the other way. But let's go back to the conversation about valuations for a second because that makes a difference. If you're looking at a stock that has no earnings and it has no particular revenue, let's say, uh, like Oculus, for example, that uh, Facebook paid $2 billion for recently, didn't have a product in the market or any revenues. And so there's this completely irrational valuation going on. And if it were me involved, I would say, well, I don't want any part of that deal. On the other hand, you do get real companies. There's another company I follow called DocuSign. And although their revenues aren't public, I happen to know they're denominated in at least tens of millions of dollars and that they've got lots of customers. And they also have been doing private financing. But when they come to the public market, they'll have a real business behind them. So at least you can invest in that.
1: Well, I remember back to the time that uh, AOL bought Time Warner, and that was at the peak of the tech bubble uh, in, uh, I think, 1998 or the early 2000s, anyway, if my memory serves me correctly. But the, the whole point was that at the time, the, the, the tech industry was talking about terrestrial firms, those with real earnings and real businesses, and then these sort of what was supposed to be non-terrestrial companies. Now, as soon as AOL actually bought a company that had real earnings, its own share price Collapsed because people realized it was unsustainable. So right. are companies like Facebook, Google, who are buying companies like WhatsApp, doing so, realizing the mistakes that AOL made all that time ago?
4: Well, I don't know if humans are really very good at learning from their mistakes. I mean, the right. evidence is that they're not. But uh, the, there's this real question of, um, well, there's a question of real business, but there's also um, something about what does this company really do, so let's let's take them apart a bit. So Google, for example, has this magical thing called search that they do really wonderfully. That's how they make all their money. It's on search advertising. Now, they have a lot of extra money that's sort of spinning off from them all the time. And they're using it to invest in other things that they hope will bear fruit in the future. And that's actually a good strategy. If you make a lot of money, you've gotta figure out big businesses in the future that only people with a lot of money can invest in that may not bear fruit for another 10 years. And you're gonna hope to be the one who develops that so that you get the future revenue stream as well as the current one. So when you're talking about things like drones flying around at five miles high and creating internet access for people in Africa, it sounds pretty far fetched, and maybe it is. But those companies have so much money that they can invest it like this up front, and maybe they're just science experiments, but maybe they'll be real businesses. Maybe one in 10 will be a real business, but they're trying to do that. So I think there, there are some issues. And, you know, if you look at um, Facebook, for example, right now, it has a PE ratio, price earnings ratio, of about 100. And To me, that implies in my old valuation model, the the sort of earnings plus growth uh, model, that all of the value is in the future, that much of the value is in the future. That's what that stock price says, is it's too high uh, when based on current earnings. So there must be something else in there. People, the market, believe that there's going to be these future businesses, and so they're hanging out for, for them, waiting for them to materialize. Uh, to me, that looks a little risky, um, but uh, you know, that's why we have a marketplace. Says, "I'm the seller when you're the buyer."
1: But is it? You know, c- going back to your point on on Oculus, um, here you've got a two year old virtual reality startup. Uh, as you say, they've got no real product uh, or no proven product, um, no idea of what the sales might be, um, and yet uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, CEO of Facebook, is, is making a bet on it. Um, the $2 billion that that company will receive will presumably be in Facebook stock. If I was an yeah. owner of Oculus, I'd want to cash those shares in as quickly as I could. So what sort right. of lockup do those owners that are selling to Facebook have? Are they locked into Facebook shares or, or are they well, then able to sell them on the market?
4: Yeah, typically the, the, the principal players are locked in and therefore they can't move for at least two years or something like that. Uh, And they have these windows they can sell in and so on. Um, But uh, I actually looked into this question of percentage of cash versus versus stock in different deals. Uh, Google did a deal with ITA software, and that was an all-cash deal. And the founder that I spoke to on that deal said to me, you know, their arrogance was unbelievable because they actually thought that Google stock was worth more than cash. And they weren't going to give us their valuable Google stock. They were going to just give us these dirty paper dollars instead.
1: I mean, this is the emperor has no clothes, isn't it? I mean, it's (laughs) absolutely uh, unbelievable. But... uh, um Another example I just wanted to, you know, I picked up this week, I, I was looking at Amazon's results. Um, yes. They have a, a $140 billion valuation. I think it is a real business. They've got new centers and they're selling books and, and films and all the rest of it. But um, right. they've only actually ever produced $5 billion of profits over the last decade. Um, their whole purpose seems to be dri- to drive revenue growth. I mean, is that a sustainable model? A- at the end of the day, um, surely investors finally, finally want to see some kind of profits coming through because otherwise, yeah. why would you invest in them?
4: Well, right. In this case, I think Amazon's being quite rational. And you're correct. There is, it's not possible to sustain uh, revenue growth when you start reaching $100 billion. You can't, you can't keep going at, at the former rate of growth. But what everyone expects is that Amazon will use its tremendous scale to then turn around and squeeze profit out of the business. And I think this is an important point, because uh, tech, some, some some companies make money almost from the start, they, they sell some device like Apple, it's very profitable right from the beginning, they sell a lot of them and they make money and that's very nice. And in the early years of the tech business, Most of the tech companies had billions of dollars of cash on their balance sheets just from running good businesses. But Amazon has taken a very different tack. They have reinvested all of their earnings in revenue growth. And revenue growth is meaningful for investors. When when earnings aren't there, particularly in the early years, they look at what kind of revenue growth is going on. That's why they give Amazon such a high multiple. But what they also expect is that at some point, Jeff Bezos will pull the throttle and start to rein in the costs, and because of the tremendous scale, will drop huge profits to the bottom line, and I think that's quite possible.
1: Yeah, I think that I, I read somewhere that if their revenues continue to grow over the next decade, they'll have actually half a trillion of sales, which would, would make them the size of Walmart, which is you know pretty phenomenal. Right, right.
4: Imagine then if they take their tiny little profit margin, which is like, I don't know, 1% or something, and they just sort of look at costs and look at various things and they pull it up by 2 or 3%. Not very much, but on a huge base like that, you're going to start dropping billions of dollars to the bottom line.
1: Well, I think, so I think differentiation clearly is the, the key with tech companies. But you've got um, commentators, short sellers like David Einhorn, who runs Greenlight Capital and I think is a very uh, bright man, coming out and saying technology is in a bubble. And yet you've got Wall Street on the other side saying, um, no, it's not in a bubble and we can continue to sell these stocks at inflated prices. Who's uh, right? Well... I would tend
4: to trust Einhorn a little bit more than the guys on Wall Street who who have a vested interest in that outcome. Remember, some of them are traders making money on either end of the transaction. So uh, you have to assume that they just want you to stay at the party. But um, I think, you know, as I did an article last week in Forbes.com about the current earnings season and the firms that are doing well and not doing so well. And, you know, it's not just simply old tech and new tech, but there are companies that are valued reasonably well. They don't have tremendously high multiples. They have real businesses. They have real earnings. And you know these are companies like Intel and Microsoft and IBM. They've been around for a while. Uh, And then there's new tech where you've got all of the sort of crazy valuations. And I think that it's up to investors to pick out which ones are going to survive, which ones like Amazon are going to be able to turn profit at a future point and which ones are just making money now. and they, they represent good investments, even with a decent dividend. Take, for example, Intel.
1: Well, uh, Roger, that's all we have time for now. But look, it's a delight to have you on the show. Thank you very much for that insight on uh, valuations on tech stocks. That was Roger Kay, technology analyst and founder of Endpoint Technologies, uh, based in the U.S., and thank you very much for joining us this evening. Great, Nick. Thanks a lot. After the break, our international markets overview, so please stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency. Now, as always, it's time for our international markets update. Joining me on the line from Hong Kong is Brian Murray, Head of Economic Strategies at AIA Insurance Group. Welcome to the show, Brian. Um, now, first of all, purchasing manufacturers' uh, index data, or PMI data, was released this week from China. Um, it showed the fourth consecutive month of declines. Um, most economists view PMI data as being uh, a strong leading indicator of economic growth. And for the moment, at least, China appears to be in contraction. So um, is, is China headed for a hard or a soft landing uh, in, in terms of economics, do you think?
5: Um, I think the, uh, the data definitely indicate a soft landing. Um, the PMI number that came out was an HSBC flash PMI, which looks at the small and medium enterprises. And that number actually picked up. It's still in contractionary territory, you're right, but actually picked up, and it picked up by a minor level in, in April. I know the markets reacted to it negatively, but the official PMI number is actually slightly positive. Um, and again, uh, you're right to point to that data as indicating a slowing down in China. But that And the GDP number also came out earlier uh, last week, and that indicated 7.7% growth down to 7.4% growth. So you're definitely talking about slower growth in China, but it's a soft landing, definitely not a hard landing. And this is a landing that's been advertised for over a year. So I would um, I would say it's not only a soft landing, but it's one that's been well advertised, uh, particularly inside China.
1: And uh, earlier uh, in the uh, in the series, we spoke to you, and we were we were discussing at that time the the credit bubble uh, in China. Do you think that's been managed successfully, or, or does it remain a risk uh, for foreign investors?
5: Um, I think it, it's being managed successfully. Um, it's ongoing. So, again, if you look at, uh, again, data that came out last week, you had the uh, M2, the mon- monetary supply. That actually started to slow. Um, again, it's intentional. And if you look at um, total social financing, that's uh, credit growth and bond issuance, et cetera, this March versus last March, it's down close to 20%. So they are slowing credit growth which is uh, very positive. And again, since we last spoke, we've had some uh, minor um, credit defaults or credit issues, um, credit events, uh, I should say. And those are actually, I think, again, fairly positive because it basically ends the idea that there's going to be no bankruptcies in China and it's going to introduce um, the culture of uh, credit underwriting and um, you know, risk that's appropriately priced as opposed to implicit guarantees from the state. And that's the general direction that the the new leadership is trying to take the economy. And again, these credit events have been fairly small uh, scale, but they've been fairly larger in their impact in the sense that banks are now aware that uh, credit events are real and they have to underwrite risk accordingly, which, you know, for all China's reform over the last 30 years, this is actually a very new development. And I think this financial sector reforms are uh, central to the, the shift away from Um, industry-led, manufacturing-led, investment-led growth, Um, and this will be a a key change. And it won't be a quick change. It'll play out over the course of the next year.
1: Okay, well, moving on to uh, Japan, where uh, inflation was reported last week uh, at 2.7%, which is a 22-year high uh, extraordinarily. Part of that increase is obviously due to a sharp sales tax rise imposed in April. Um, I suppose the question we're left with is, is Abenomics uh, working? Um, Is Japanese QE working? And um, is inflation actually picking up or not in Japan?
5: Yeah, I don't think inflation is picking up to the level that the central bank wants it. And again, I think you're you're exactly right to talk about the consumption tax on the 1st of April that, that, that came in. And that is basically, um, I think, sort of backsliding on Abenomics. So if you think about Abenomics, the way it's been advertised as three arrows, fiscal, monetary, and structural. The consumption tax increase is basically uh, backsliding on the fiscal stimulus idea. So I think that there's basically going to be a pause in Abenomics and the monetary front they have also said that monetary policy that the Bank of Japan met last week is going to stay consistent for the, the balance of this year. And so you won't see any new effort to move the economy in that regard. And structural reform is basically uh, all that's left in terms of trying to get some more impetus for growth. Um, the inflation number is, 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 is sort of a positive in the sense that they're trying to get more inflation, um, but I, I don't think that that's going to um, increase the velocity of money or scare money in, into, the, into the economy to you know, stay on the sidelines. And to the extent that it does, I, I'd actually think it would move liquidity offshore out of Japan, and I'm not so certain that that would um, positively impact growth. And you've also had data coming out of Japan in terms of uh, industrial production or consumer sentiment. That's basically been negative. So if you look at the the results of Abenomics, it's very positive in uh, 2012, and to a lesser extent um, the first half of 2013. But the last two quarters of growth have, have, have been fairly flat.
1: Well, just moving on, perhaps, to another part of the world and one of the major risks for markets at the moment. Uh, t- tensions in the Ukraine uh, seem to be escalating. Russian troops, special forces, uh, are lined up on the Ukraine's eastern border. Um, there's been a lot of ret- uh, rhetoric going backwards and forwards between the U.S., Europe, and uh, and Russia. Um, How vulnerable are markets to what appears to be a very uh, volatile situation? And perhaps just a very quick comment, if you can, on Russia's central bank having to raise rates last week. Was that as a result of uh, sanctions or or other other influences?
5: Bank raised rates last week. They also raised uh, rates in February when the uh, issue first came up. So I think the the Russian central bank is basically trying to stem capital flight, and that's been an issue since the uh, Ukrainian uh, crisis uh, sort of emerged in in, in late February. Um, But if we talk about it in terms of the global economy, um, and you had asked earlier about uh, a shock to China, Russia is a major energy producer, particularly for Europe. It's also, you know, oil prices fungible, et cetera. So this could lead to some sort of exogenous shock for, the, for the, the global economy, particularly the Asian economy. I think the prospects for that are, um, you know, they're real. Um, very, very hard to predict because, as you mentioned, the, the situation is quite tense and, and volatile, and from one week to the next you have, you know, a peace accord announced in Geneva and then, and, and then and backed away from shortly thereafter. So I'd be loath to sort of predict what would happen there, but in terms of the impact on the global economy, you know, Russia's an energy producer, particularly for Europe, to the extent that it has an economic impact, I think uh, it would be right there, and that would obviously have an a, a impact on Asia.
1: Brian, thank you very much for joining us this evening. That was uh, Brian Murray, Head of Economic Strategies at AIA Insurance Group based in Hong Kong. So that's all we have uh, time for this week. Uh, my thanks to all who contributed, to our panelists, to our international guests who joined us from the U.S. and Hong Kong, and to producer Eva Gillivan. Join me next week at 6 p.m. and until then, take care and farewell.